I touched on a piece I'd written in 2010 about chill wave and hypnagogic pop and all these different you know names we were throwing around. A lot of it didn't really work together per se. There was a lot of different sounds that were coming out. Um, you know, you would get stuff that was essentially classically a drone recording, but depending on the imagery that was used to market it, it would be talked about as, you know, potentially being part of this whole movement. And that was kind of, you know, the joke I made about genre wave. It's just like, you know, I don't really know that we need to have so many different striations around all this stuff. Some time ago, Ghostbox had been doing this stuff that Simon Reynolds calls hauntology um, and hauntological pop. And I think that is one of my favorite, you know, concepts that's been assigned to this, this trend. The thing about all this music that's been going on, you know, A, yeah, it's made by a younger generation, but it really is very explicit about the exploratory nature of digging through the past. And it's digging through everything, not just music. Obviously, dubstep has nothing to do with Ariel Pink or Washed Out. So, you know, yeah, there needs to be some codification if you're going to talk intelligently about these subjects. All of that editorial labor is really about pop music. And what I mean when I say pop music is music made by people who wouldn't mind if they were famous. It seems to me their frustration and the frustration of artists like Ty Seagal and even newer bands like Milk Music, th these guys are trying to figure out ways that they can become successful even if success is translated as fame or renown, without completely sacrificing themselves to the day-to-day -day churn of editorial kind of digestion. None of these publications are immune to the sense that they'll be handing you a new artist and then feeling a sense of ownership for having delivered that to you. But that has nothing to do with the music. It has to do with the information. The bands end up feeling exploited by the gatekeeping websites and then they end up feeling burned because some percentage of their fans is going to have a completely irrational jealousy over how they've attained this next level of exposure. And fans always feel that. Whenever a band moves into a space that their fans aren't comfortable with them being in, and then those fans are the ones who are like, yeah, you sold out and all that bullshit. Well, you know, that may be laughable to somebody my age in their late 30s, but teenagers, you know, they stake a lot of their sense of their own identity to the things that they enjoy. I mean, it's no different from when I was a kid. There are some things that are pretty universal. Kids looking to different strains of pop music to express for them what they can't express themselves because they lack either, you know, the wisdom or the power in their lives to make a dent and tell people, this is who I am. Well, the music is a way for them to get some of that information out there. Something that's taken on a whole new meaning in the internet era is the limited edition. Um, and one of the topics I touched on in the article I mentioned was Generation Pokemon. The kids in their 20s now, they grew up with artificial scarcity as the backbone of their entire existence. A trading card inside a universe of other trading cards where its power and its rarity is artificially inserted by the company who produces this game by printing them in lower numbers. This happened obviously in Magic the Gathering, in the Pokemon games, and a whole variety of, of card games that were exploding in the 1990s. When I would go out as a kid and buy baseball cards, I didn't know which cards were rare. Topps, Fleer, they didn't publish that stuff. But the rarity and the scarcity of the different Pokemons in the video games and in the card games was part and parcel to the promotion of the entire product. And that to me is absolutely fucking crazy, but it's also kind of cool. 
because it gives you a system where everybody knows that the thing you have is rare. So there's no question that you can be like, oh, I have seven, you know, Carl Yastrzemski's, that's not a rare card, even though it may have been, nobody knows that. But Wizards of the Coast and the Pokemon game, they're telling you right out front, if you happen to get this card, you're gonna have amazing powers that only X number of other people are going to have. This company decides at the top, this is what this game looks like. These are which cards are harder to find, and these are the more common. When you're raised with that set of values, with respect to something that you're passionate about, and when you're a kid, you're passionate about Pokemon, when you get older, and you start looking at the things that older people look to to replace those kind of childhood obsessions, well, pop music's right there for you. When I was in my 20s, the big thing was the vinyl revival. All these obscure seven inches by these bands and it was hard to find them because only certain distributors would carry them. So how were you gonna get them? You couldn't go to the mall and get them. You gotta get in touch with Forced Exposure or you gotta go to Mystery Train or whatever, Amoeba. You gotta go to these record stores that are likely to have these obscure things. And then some of them even have cassette racks where self-produced cassettes are there. You got Shrimper in California sending these tapes around for three bucks of Lou Barlow's Wasted Pieces and Most of the Worst and Some of the Rest. There's another one. His Name is Alive did a ton of this too. Warren Fever was out in um, Livonia and like this is a tape that he sent out of them playing live in Mexico in 1993 and 1994. Um, and those were just self-released on his Time Stereo label. Oh man, yeah. El Cabong, baby. Trotsky Ice Pick. That one's for you, Jessop. Um, Oh, and I think I, was it Matos? Yeah, this Matos was obsessed with this, right? Yeah, what's up? Kasengel, Falling, Billy Cruz. So this cassette thing was sort of the underground underground. It was beneath seven inches and it was hand traded and it was kind of, it was very self-deprecating because obviously if you were doing this, the idea is like you're gonna run off what? A couple hundred of these over the time period that anyone even gives a crap. Today, it's not really about just getting out tons and tons of stuff that you know has no commercial potential. Today, it's about hiding. I know it's being done with a flavor of the kind of slow movement um, in the sense that kids are saving up or joining together and in some cases using Kickstarter to crowdfund. The whole experience of honoring the closed loop, the closed distribution network that you're you know, aligning yourself with um, is part and parcel of the whole thing. So the music, in a way, it's really heavily augmented by the knowledge that only you and the people that you know you have this agreement with are going to hear it. And I was looking at the website for this particular label called Blackest Ever Black, and they advertise the idea that their releases are only distributed to the home guard. And I thought, holy shit, that is fucking beautiful. That's exactly what this is about. The home guard. It's like, it's wonder, it's almost like calling it a fucking militia. It's like a cultural militia. Like, we are the only people. We're like acolytes, you know? We're the seraphims of this entire thing. No one's ever getting their hands on it except us, and we don't talk about it. In doing this, you're creating criterion. You're saying, you have to make X effort to know about this material. If you want to be aware of my art, you need to be aware of my community. People love to mock and condescend to tape labels and this kind of, you know, really intensely devotional art. But that's the piece of it that is so inarguably valuable. You're creating the barriers to entry that I always talk about. And 
without barriers to entry, you lose the ability to have a community. When you say like, oh, well, that band got written up on Fader, so I can't pay attention to them anymore because they're not obscure enough. That's fucking ridiculous. I mean, that's just being a big fucking baby. Everything is equally debatable and enjoyable as music. It doesn't have to be precious and hidden. I was working for months and months on a piece called The Hiding. And it was all about these kind of, you know, social and musical issues about not wanting to be exploited or exposed. It was about not wanting to be used as a brick in the structural integrity of a website that sells advertisements based on its very existence. Which is to say, without all these bricks, we can't build this website and draw all these people into it and then sell advertisements based on their attention. The musicians that don't want that on their hands, it's just so easy to just lazily dismiss people as trying too hard or making too much of something. But in this case, there's a real problem here with how music is currently being distributed and how that distribution has been completely infected by advertising. It's really difficult to reach an audience cleanly. And the more effort you make to purify the distribution of your music, the necessarily the harder it becomes for people to know about it. When you try and create that kind of monastic, austere attitude toward something as usually basic as pop music, it seems incongruous. It seems like it's a completely over-the-top, unnecessary level of pretension. And, you know, in one sense it is. But I just, I really feel a sense of identification with the frustration these kids are dealing with. Because I already had my time, and my time didn't have these questions and these problems. My time was real simple. If I wanted to feel cooler than mainstream music, I'd go get a record player and a bunch of fucking seven inches, and I'd learn all about Guided by Voices, or I'd become a hardcore kid, and I'd go get, you know, fucking crazy old Madball seven inches, and, you know, that'd be what I'd do with my time. By confronting those barriers to entry and making that effort, I was passing tests and joining a social network of like-minded people who were self-policing about what worked and was acceptable in their social network and what wasn't. How do you create that kind of exclusionary sense of belonging? It's not about running away. It's about hiding. It's a very different thing. You're not trying to run away from MTV or Kanye West or any of the mainstream art that's out there. You just don't give a shit about it. And you want to find a way to have a dialogue and a social life that has that as a kind of tenet. That's why all these people are talking in terms of witch house, occult this, new age symbols, inscrutability. It's about trying to hide in plain sight. You use symbols and signs that pledge your allegiance, right? The problem is, once enough people are doing that, it just becomes fodder for someone to write an editorial where they decode it and sell it to their readers and thereby prove their own, you know, musical sophistication and cultural awareness by being on top of what you're doing. I was talking to somebody who runs one of these labels about it and the joke I made is it's like protect this house. You're creating a situation where you're like the Knights Hospitaller and you're, you're putting, you know, this particular cross on you to advertise that you belong to this organization 
I salute the kids that are fighting this fight and trying to protect their personal investment in music culture and not let it get exploited. And I think this is something that's only going to get more and more codified and become more and more of a face-on kind of battle between the media that are circling them in the skies and these artists that are just going to dig deeper and deeper into obscurity, but figure out ways they can find each other. You know, figure out the signals they're going to need to use to self-identify in a crowd without identifying their crowd.